Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. This week, we're delighted to have Sam Satoli and Anthony Ball of Value Capital Partners in the pod. The pair run a value activist strategy out of Johannesburg. Juan, who was joined by Rollo, another fund manager at Schroeder's, asked Sam and Anthony about how they launched an activist investor strategy in South Africa and some of the unique challenges that the market presents. They also discussed how they handle uncertainty as engaged shareholders and some of the processes they use to shape management in the companies that they invest in, which might include a force of personality. Sam, Anthony, welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, maybe as a way to start, could you please each provide us with a little bit of your backgrounds? Yeah, thanks very much. And, and thanks for having us uh, on this podcast. My name is Sam Sitole. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Value Capital Partners. Yeah, my name is Anthony Ball. I'm the uh, non-executive chairman of Value Capital Partners and co-founder with Sam. Um, thank you. Maybe you could um, provide us with a little bit of background on how Value Capital Partners was, was started and, and what, what led you guys to launch, uh, a, what you will correct me if I'm wrong, a very value activist concentrated strategy operating in South Africa. Okay. No, thank, thanks very much for that. Um, our background is in private equity. So Anthony Bo was actually the co-founder of the first private equity private equity fund in South Africa, uh, Braid, uh, in the late 80s. Um, so many years of private equity experience. And we started working together around 2008. Um, and at that particular stage, about three years later, Braid changed from being a multi-manager of assets into an investment holding company uh, and became quite successful listed on the, on the JSC with a secondary listing on the Land, uh, Luxembourg Stock Exchange. Um, and the two of us wanted to find the next best thing. Uh, I think what uh, the markets taught us probably around 2008, 2009, uh, with the great, uh, the, the great financial crisis was just how tough it was to raise capital um, and also just to have a new discipline uh, of, of, of doing exactly the same thing. So this is how we landed on the idea of an activist investing firm in South Africa. Um, there've been uh, a little bit of activist investing, but nothing mainstream. So we thought this would be a great opportunity to, to launch something new in the South African space uh, and to plug that gap where you've got, you know, you don't have a shareholder of reference on listed businesses when something, you know, starts to go wrong. So we saw that as, as a great opportunity 
but we weren't really sure whether you know it would really work uh, or not in South Africa. So part of what we did was we took a trip uh, to 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 the USA uh, in November 2016, uh, as well as to to Europe, uh, and we met with uh, Value X Capital, uh, you know, just to understand their processes, how they work. We also met with a, a few activist investors on the East Coast, uh, which was really great. And then we then uh, took the trip to uh, to Sweden to meet with the founder of Serbian Capital, uh, who was also quite gracious to meet with us. So through all that and, and understanding their background uh, uh, and also understanding that, you know, like uh, value Act Capital, part of their background is in the private equity space. How do they translate that to the listed space in the activist investing space? When we came back in November 2016, we were really confident that this is a model that that could work in South Africa, but tweaked to the to the local uh, peculiarities of South African markets. That's really interesting, and actually, it's a great segue to to our first question, which is, um, how do you think the, about the process of activism in in a place like South Africa? Because when we think about the strategy in many other regions of the world. It, it hasn't really worked outside of the U.S. In the, or, or it hasn't been as successful as it has been in the U.S. So why activism would work in the, in, in the context of the South African market? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I also ask Anthony to weigh in here. I think, I think our trip to the, um, to the U.S. and also reading some books around how activist in, investing is done in the U.S. taught us certain things that wouldn't work in South Africa, for, for instance. I think when you read books like uh, Dear Chairman and Barbarians at the Gate and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, there's a saying that, you know, the world is a small place. Everyone is about two or three calls away. But in South Africa, it is even smaller than that. So, so writing letters to the media and trashing the CEO and you know, those things won't work in South Africa. It's, it's more of a... It's more of a Uh, personal approach that works. Uh, so for us, um, we, we saw that we needed to modify our model. So you will see that a lot of the activist investing that we have done uh, has been more collaboration uh, with uh, different investors, uh, institutional investors, uh, collaboration with the different boards, with the CEOs. Um, when changes have to be made, it's not announced to the to the press. We 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 actually ask uh, whoever is leaving to fashion their own reasons uh, for for exiting um, uh, the place. Uh, so so it's more of a collaborative approach uh, that that we have seen works in 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 South Africa. I think the the number of years and deals that we we had also done as private equity in South Africa gave us the networks uh, to, to to be able to to attract people that we can partner with. So when we invest in specific industry, we look for industry experts uh, to, 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 to guide us in terms of how to actually unlock the value. So when you have you know, worked in the capital markets and the private equity space with lots of um, founders of businesses, it helps. So, our, so for instance, our first deal, I can, I can talk about it because it's in the past, Outron, was because you know we had worked with the Fenta family for a long time uh, um, as 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 Bright sold them businesses, considered different things with them. So having a discussion with them was much easier because it came from a relationship perspective. So I'll probably say the biggest thing, biggest difference would be the importance of relationship in a South African context and making sure you take a collaborative approach. But I'll also ask Anthony to to weigh in here. 
Thanks, Sam. Just one or two other points. I think one another one is uh, the percentage ownership is also different. As you go into smaller capital markets, one finds that ownership is more concentrated. I think you'd find the same in New Zealand or Australia, uh, but certainly here as well. So uh, whereas uh, the big activists in the in the US, if they've got a percent or two, they've got, they throw their weight around here. You kind of start at five and you probably end up at 15 or 20. Uh, given that there will be other institutional shareholders that um, that are big holders, and typically any big listed company in South Africa, you'll find five or six um, people that speak for control. So I think understanding that dynamic is and working with it is um, is, is quite important. I think a second is, and and this is maybe why it also is more challenging in developing environments, is that um, your pool of directors and your pool of executive resources is somewhat thinner in a place like South Africa. You know, we, um, I think of private equity stories and uh, talking to our, count- our counterparts in the US that they'll give a 100-day plan and tell the CEO, listen, if you haven't done this in 100 days, you're out, we'll find somebody else. We, we don't have, th- have that. Uh, maybe it's, it's partly cultural, but partly also the, the bench is not very deep in South Africa. So you end up needing to nurse your resources along um, more than one would uh, in other places. Having said that, well, the final point I'll make is I think one of the things that Sam and I have learned from our experience here is that the changes have often been more profound than we anticipated at the beginning. Is Once you get into these companies, you may find um, the work that's needed to get them to where you want to be is greater. Um, but that you know, dovetails into Sam's first point is that we've managed to do all of that without... Um, you know, media intervention, use of media, use of tools, it's all happened rather quietly behind the scenes, which is probably a cultural trait um, that's quite South African that we need to respect as well. So could I just ask then, um, just following on from that, you know, what what type of personality do you think you need to be um, to be a more sort of private equity or activist investor? And how does that differ from your traditional sort of um, asset managers who were, who were working on, on equity markets? That's a great question, Rolo, and, and, and something that we, we had to grapple with at the beginning. So, so when we started our business, uh, we thought, you know, what we're going to be doing is really just private equity in the listed space. So our pool of people should come from private equity, and it didn't work out that way. And I think a big part of it is because... Um, you know, when we do deals in the private equity space, uh, most of them will be private uh, private businesses, and it's really an agreement between you and the owner and 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 probably your lenders around the table, and deals uh, deals get done. Whereas in the listed space, you find that you've got you know dispersed um, share shareholders, so you need, you need to get them over the line. You walk into a boardroom, uh, you've got. 10 or 12 independent uh, non-executive directors uh, who are probably suspicious and hostile before you even walk into the door. And you've got a CEO who doesn't believe you should be there. Um, So all this brings into uh, um, what what you really need is someone who is able to both have a force of personality to be able to to drive uh, whatever they believe is the right thing to do, but uh, be very... uh, acute that they need to win over uh, the board of directors. They, it needs to be something that's not a VCP decision, but it's actually owned by the board. So be prepared to make sure that you know you can advance, you can suggest things, and some of them will be rejected, and that's okay, uh, and some of them will be adopted. But at the end of the day, 
you need to have a collegial uh, relationship with the board so that you know they feel that they are running the company and you also need to be tough at, at times when you know when when maybe the core has to be that the ceo needs to exit the business uh, and and to have those discussions but do it in such a way that you know you you you're playing the ball and and not the player and 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 you can still have a cup of coffee afterwards you know once once the person has left the business so all these you know brings a lot of different characteristics that you need in that person so it's been a great learning curve for us and and so when we started we didn't really have a sophisticated way of finding you know the right people for 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 the role but now you find that we've got case studies we've got psychometric tests we've got extensive background tests to find the right type of person who succeed in a in a in an activist type type model and i think we 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 we're getting there we've got a, a stable team now and 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 any one of us can go onto the board and doesn't need you know myself or anthony to be there so which is a mm. great place to be mm. cuz i was going to ask do you think it's a kind of natural instinct in the people that you're recruiting um the the type of behavioral um things that you've just described or do you think it's something that can be can be learned um on the on the job i think it's a bit of both i think certain things you wouldn't have done them before um but what we probably look for is that if you don't have that uh do you have the uh capacity to learn that and and to upskill that uh, to upskill in that particular regard i'll probably also uh, add a caveat uh what we've also realized is that what you also don't want to do is end up with let's say 10 or 12 directors who think and act exactly the same right because then that also leads to pitfalls so part of what we We, we 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 are doing now is sometimes you you need to be able to find someone who is just uh, really good at equity markets and they don't necessarily want to be on the on the board right but that would pose as a sense check when you are making decisions around the table uh, and someone who's got a different um, particular skill set whether it's analytical or a contrarian view or they've been a hedge fund uh, person and they can see certain things that the team doesn't see Uh, but they don't uh, necessarily enjoy you know being on the board so i think we've now created that capacity uh, but the core of the team has to be sort of the factors that i i mentioned at the beginning okay and then when you when you're looking to select a, an investment to go into um is there a, a, a sense that um you know some some companies are easier to change than others before you invest and does the does it have to relate to some of the upside that you're looking for when you you're making the up- the investment itself yeah rollo you, you seem to be picking on all the questions where we have had a, a, a deep pain and and deep learning <laughs> in our fucking <factory laughs> journey <laughs> i think certainly now i can i can certainly uh, say that um i think when you come from a private equity background um you know a failed investment you probably i mean you can know it at the beginning but it probably becomes apparent maybe 3 4 years after you've invested in it because part of it is you you do your own uh evaluation of your portfolio companies but in the listed space you know the judgment is on a daily basis so the moment a company uh produces results your your portfolio can fall by 20 30 40% right and 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 a big part of what we've learned from that is that um in the listed space uh investors are quite jittery about stretched balance sheets and they are quite jittery about potential capital raises Uh so when you when you are looking for a potential investment 
if you can, uh, you should avoid ones that are stretched uh, uh, balance sheet wise or where there's a capital raise required. And the main reason is you, it won't give you time to actually make the changes that you require because you, you're trying to worry about the balance sheet, but you're also trying to change the strategy or trying to sell assets and all that. So it doesn't give you much time. So I would say that's a big, uh, probably red flag uh, to say, you know, um, it will dwarf everything else. The other thing that um, we've sort of learned uh, through this journey has been the depth of management. Uh, so yes, activist investors are supposed to be active, but at the end of the day, management run the business. They run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you don't have good management, uh, it's very difficult to keep things on track because by the time you come after a week or a month later, there's another crisis. Whereas when you find really good management, you find that you know things just get done and, and they've got new initiatives. They're able to, to focus things. They're able to deal with the crisis. So I think those two things uh, are probably things that I would say we found that, you know, if you can, you want to avoid that. But sometimes you can't because that's where the, the, the opportunity is. Uh, but I also ask Anthony to, to come in here. Thanks, Dan. Uh, not a lot to add, uh, but I suppose just a general point is when we speak about what we do, we are looking for companies that have got inherent strength. So we're not looking for broken companies. And but companies that have inherent, inherent strength but have a need for a combination of uh, governance, leadership, or strategy change. Now, we don't want companies that need all three of those things at the same time because they're quite hard things to... Uh, so in our portfolio, we, we have about two of those at the moment. So, you know, you can tolerate a certain amount. You can tolerate a certain amount. But uh, this really smart thing, in our view, is to find a company that's, you know, a small tweak does the value unlock. Uh, we don't want too many of these that require, you know, complete overhaul of the board, complete overhaul of, of management, a complete overhaul of strategy, because it's, it really is um, absorbing in terms of the, the bandwidth of the firm and of the senior people and the capacity of the organization. Um, so I, and we keep on saying that, you know, our fantasy is to find that thing that requires minimal intervention and minimal <laughs> change, and then off you go. It hasn't, hasn't come across our path yet, but we'll find it. <laughs> How different is or has been the experience over the last four to five years running value um, capital versus what it was uh, running Braid in the sense that, you will correct me if I'm wrong, but Braid, um, you would own companies for a much longer period of time relative to what your expected investment period is for the current strategy. I'll ask Anthony to come in here because you probably, <laughs> he was running great more than I was running uh, uh, VCP. I think, I think uh, just a correction there, um, our activist investing model uh, is actually in a way a, a better model for us because there's no uh, time limit in terms of, you know, the fund. So we run, we, we run a perpetual fund. Uh, so that means we can, you know, investors can be in the fund uh, forever. Uh, there's no... 10, 10 uh, five-year investing and then five-year disinvesting as in private equity. So, so certainly we don't think in terms of a time limit. We, we sort of think in terms of how long should, should, should it on average take us to see the value come through. And we think within three years, uh, we, sh we should start to see those things that we have been working on come through. And by year five or seven, we should be able to, you know, to get the returns that, uh, that, that, that we target. Um, in, yeah, so Anthony, just maybe if you could just comment from a 
great private equity and yeah. Sure, I'll just make two points. One is that one of the great advantages of this model versus private equity is that we, private equity, it takes about a year or 18 months to actually onboard the investment. And by the time you've gone through the process of making an acquisition, and probably about the same amount of time at the back end. So you've got a, a shortening of both of those processes because you can buy the shares and you can sell them in the market when you choose to do so. So you've got that inherent advantage. The other thing I point out by way of difference, and it does get back to the question about what kind of people work here, is in, in private equity, you generally have a fuller deck of information to work off. When you make an acquisition, uh, it's become more customary now than it was in my time, but even then, you have extensive due diligence. You can get whatever information you want before you make your investment decision. And typically, it's you know, commercial due diligence and financial due diligence and and in this world that we're in, um, you're going all on publicly available information. So your information deck is much lighter. And what that means, uh, as we found as a critical difference in terms of this business and the kind of people that are successful at it, you need to get conviction on this information. And that's a, a personality psychological trait that is often different between private equity people and hedge fund people. So we're looking for something in the middle of that where people can get deep conviction uh, based on what's available in the public domain. And we did find that a number of our early hires that came from the private equity world battled with that. Um, you know, what more? Well, you can't get more. <laughs> it's, you, you, once you have more, you actually, you know, you, you've got non-public information you can't buy. So you're needing to, uh, you're needing to align with the same information that everyone else has. Okay. And then the, the, the other question just around, around this liquidity point, I think you were mentioning you know, earlier about um, you know, having one or two or three maybe other big investors on the, it, within the company. You know, you've got quite concentrated and big asset managers in, in South Africa. So what's the relationship like with them uh, when you're trying to enact change? But also, how do you sometimes persuade them to basically sell chunks of businesses to, to you guys uh, in the first place? Yeah. So, in, so, 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 yeah. In the South African context, we've got quite stringent uh, financial market regulations. So, part of part of what you you have is these anti-collusion regulations between mm. shareholders. Um, so, whatever work we do with uh, with other shareholders is using publicly available information. Um, uh, so, so that's quite quite important. And also, there is. Um, this 35% control where if you go up, up over that threshold, you have to make a mandatory offer to minorities. Also, that includes if you're colluding with other shareholders. So all the work that we do is, is, is to make sure that, you know, we don't trip those regulations. Having said that, um, uh, what you can do is uh, using publicly available information, discuss your views around the value unlock for those particular portfolio companies. Um, and and we do that uh, on a regular basis with other shareholders where it's uh, you are using publicly available information. I think um, what we've been able to demonstrate in our in our early investments is that once you've got a director or a shareholder who sits on the board and is part of the let's say investment committee where the capital allocation decisions are made, uh, also part of the remuneration committee, and you make sure there's alignment with the management, things tend to happen much quicker. And, and, and the other asset managers have seen that value in, in, in our model. So for quite a significant number of investments that we have made, 
we've been able to go to them, uh, present to them our idea of the value unlock where we see the opportunity. But because these things are quite illiquid and, and, and make them realize that the only way we are able to actually execute is if they sell down part of their uh, shareholding to us at, at, at market value. And, 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 and they've been able to do that. So because it's been a mutually beneficial relationship. So when we did our first investment in, in Outron, for instance, the two biggest shareholders owned about 58% of the company. Um, so, and there was no liquidity. So we had to convince them to issue a fresh, a fresh um, issue of shares to us at those low prices for us to gain 14% of the company. And they did that, uh, but since we've been invested uh, in the company, the share price has gone on, I can't remember the number, but we've done over 50% internal rate of return and already returned almost three times of that investment in dividends to shareholders. So I think track record as well helps to be able to convince the other, the other owners of the, of the shares to, to sell down. Yeah, so I guess that initial first pitch must have been very difficult. And now as you've gained track record, then I guess it becomes easier and easier, <laughs> hopefully over time. Interesting. Yeah, a few, a few tempers were lost and uh, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> a difficult discussion. <laughs> so, well, this is, this is a podcast about decision-making in an uncertain environment. And I guess that for VCP, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the uncertainty comes from um, that period where you have identified a company and you believe that VCP can add meaningful value to strength governance and uh, make um, meaningful changes that are going to be positive for all, all, all stakeholders involved. But once you identify the company, you start to try to build up the position. How do you manage the uncertainty of actually being able to convince all of those stakeholders that um, this will be able to add value in a way that it will be positive for all involved? And how do you go about that mental process in case that it doesn't go the way that you expect? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I, think, I think the most important thing, uh, what we think about when we, when we are going through that process is downside risk, right? And our margin of safety. And that's why we spent quite a lot of time, um, you know, testing our assumptions, testing, you know, our hypothesis around uh, the, the particular asset. And it's also quite important that we give ourselves enough time. So, so it's typical for an investment that we uh, that we eventually make. I mean, I can mention because it's uh, we've made the investment. So let's say for an investment like Net One. We looked at it for a full three years before we bought a single share uh, because, you know, we just didn't think that there was enough margin of safety or we were protected in terms of the downside risk. And by the time we then uh, got convic conviction around that, the share price, I think, was trading at about $3.50 or $3 uh, per share. And the cash on the balance sheet was $4 and also had businesses within the, uh, uh, within the asset. So at that particular point, we knew that even if this thing goes belly up, you know, we still get more cash than what's actually sitting on the balance sheet. So, so a big chunk of it is um, uh, downside protection uh, um, and, and uh, the intrinsic value uh, to get that margin of safety that, 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 that we should. We talked to extensive research, knowing the industry, knowing um, the trends that are happening within the industry or what we should be anticipating. 
Uh, it also means we have to talk to a lot of industry experts in that uh, industry because they would have seen uh, this business through the various cycles, uh, right? So, so that we don't um, we don't ignore anything that might be coming around around the corner. And in uh, and, and as part of that, we then talk to other shareholders using publicly available information. So I think it's it's is really saying, are we missing something? And and let's make sure that we've got downside protection. But also happy for Anthony to 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 weigh in. Uh, but a lot of of that downside protection comes once you already have um, a position within the company, as in you have already you're already part of management, or you are already part of the board or the compensation committee, where you have a lot of more com um, control over that specific downside. As you were saying before, if you have a very large uh, cash position on the balance sheet, there's a lot of things that you can do or a lot of business that you can turn around, or some assets, or this or that. But before, at that point where you have identified the business and you start to build up your position, you don't know if you're going to get access to the board. You don't know if you're going to be able to strengthen the management of the company. You're not, you don't know if you're going to have, you will be able to put someone on the compensation committee. So how do you think about that specific period of uncertainty? Yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think you're talking of two things. So, so uh, firstly, before we buy a share, right? We, we, we're looking at the prevailing market price of that share versus what we think is the intrinsic value. And we're asking ourselves and say, is there enough downside protection, right? Before we even buy a share. So for us, that's quite important. And, and, and the example that I gave of net one still applies. The second part of your question is, once we have con convinced ourselves that you know, this is a, a good investment, but at that particular time, we don't have any assurance from the board or from the company that they will allow us to be on the board. You know, uh, how do we deal with that uncertainty? I think I think for us, uh, it's it's two things. So, firstly, we have to make the right investment, whether or not we get onto the board. So, for us, <laughs> probably eighty ninety percent of the time is on the former because, you know, if 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 we then find out other shareholders or the board or management don't want us to be on the board, it's an easy decision to sell our shares because we've got the protection that we require. So for us, you know, the most important thing is, 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 is that uh, downside protection. I think there's an, an element of risk in, 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 in when we go into the company uh, because we can do all this stuff, uh, but still, you know, the other shareholders might say, listen, if the board is not interested, maybe we shouldn't rock the board, right? And maybe we shouldn't um, uh, get you on to the board just yet. Some uh, businesses, we're quite happy not to be on the board as long as we've got access to management and we can still talk to them about, you know, the things that we require. I remember when we uh, spoke to, I think it was Value Act Capital, because where they were saying that you also need to, to, to realize that there's an in, inherent, inherent risk by being on the board because the closer you are to the company, the more you get influenced by what management say. And there's certain risks that you won't see, right? So, so equally, if we believe uh, an investment is a great investment and we can still have access to management and we can meet with them quarterly or every six months and be able to influence things, we'd still consider that uh, to, to be an investment as well. Can I just ask about the um, the process around exit um, from from investments? Because you know, if there's an your your core 
I guess, beneficiary that you bring is is the activism element to in order to create value in a stock. You know, say we've say you've been through that, and there's not a great deal that you can add anymore from an activist perspective. Does that automatically mean that the stock is now a sell? Or if the outlook is sufficiently good, then clearly you would like to hold on to that stock, and you just become a more normal normal investor. Or do you feel there's always something that you can bring to the table in order to to help management? Um, just just a thought process around that, perhaps. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think I think the, the, we we offer a particular uh, value proposition to our investors, right? And that particular value proposition is very different to um, a traditional asset manager. So a traditional asset manager on a twelve-year basis, they looking to uh, beat inflation or to perform above inflation. But for us, we 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 saying to them, we are looking for really deep value situations where if we manage to to unlock the value for this, we we'll end up with a two or a three times uh, money uh, on our investment. So these are really unique uh, opportunities. So I think where we have unlocked the value and there is no more upside, uh, which is deep value, I think for us that will be the time to exit uh, that particular investment. However, having said that. Uh, if there's going to be a significant upside, let's say in the next six to 12 months, uh, I think we'd rather delay uh, that exit until that, that happens. Uh, but every we do this probably once every month where we look at our entire portfolio, we look at where we are now, what is the upside going forward, and is this a time for us to exit or not to exit? So it's a continuous process that we do uh, probably on a weekly basis. Um, I would like to go back to um, something that you were saying before, Sam. How much does price uh, play in in your in the investment process? So I think it was Warren Buffett who said that price is my due diligence. But there's also the case that some activists in the U.S. say that they they might be willing to pay a higher price to get a foot in the door because once they are there, they will be able to um, influence a bit more, have more control on the outcome. So, so how much is price part of your, of your process and, and how do you think about it? Yeah, I think, I think price, uh, price is important, uh, but just as a reference point, the most important thing is the value, right? Um, and the intrinsic value that asset has in that, uh, what you are looking at. So, so for us, that's, this is what Anthony was referring to earlier, is you using incomplete information to come up with an intrinsic value, which is not a number you can reference to anything, right? Uh, uh, and, and you have you almost have to forget uh, the share price of the business. So for us, that's quite important. So this value, intrinsic value, uh, I, I fully agree. What it means is that if we find a quality business, uh, that has all the levers uh, and the characteristics that we think a great business has is in the right sector. It's uh, growing a double digit and all these different things. We'll be happy to pay up slightly for that business than we would have you know, a business that's very cheap, but all the metrics are wrong. Management, debt, the sector, you know. Uh, so, 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 so it's, uh, I think you quality is, is quite important in how we make our decisions. They, they, there have been businesses where either when we are going into the business or once we are in the business and we need to do bolt or acquisition for that particular business, we've been happy to pay up uh, for the quality assets, quality additions to that business so that the investment story sticks up. And 
Once another thing that um, you were mentioning before about the downside protection. Once you have identified a target company, do you as a team get together and try to red team each other, try to put a thesis um, up for debate among different members of the team? Do you try to do a pre-mortem, try to anticipate how things might go and look into the future things went wrong? Um, is that is that in any way part of the process? Yeah, we, we don't we don't have red red teams per se, uh, but but I think the process that we run is it's actually more extensive than that. So if if you remember, uh, I think I used the example of Net One where we spent about three years looking at this investment, right? And at different stages uh, of of that investment, we would come together as as directors and say, guys, we think of Net One, and this is the reason why you know this we think this is a great investment. And other directors will come and say, no, we, we don't believe this is a good investment for ABC reason, right? Then we shelf it. And then we keep on, but we keep on doing our research. And that team um, uh, comes back again and say, guys, we think that this is an option time for us to, to do this investment for whatever reason. And they are, uh, we, we have these robust debates around why we, we don't think is the right time. So that probably happened, Anthony, maybe you've got recollection, probably happened three, four times. Right and 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 at that particular time, uh, uh, Anton was a great believer in the asset, but the the rest of the team didn't believe that you know <laughs> it was a great investment at that particular time. And and and, 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 right. and <laughs> <laughs> uh, But so so through that process, I think we work very well as a team uh, because we what we do as a team is we meet uh, every Monday um, to go through the entire portfolio in terms of what everyone is doing on the team. Uh, we do check-ins on every Wednesday. And then at uh, once every month, we have detailed um, portfolio review where we go through every aspect of each investment and, and, and the team asks questions. Um, and then for new ideas, we, we firstly, it comes as a new idea, then we allocate resources, then they come back, and then we speak to industry experts, then uh, the entire team uh, weighs in. So by the time we actually decide that we want to make this investment, we've been talking about this thing maybe, I would say, minimum uh, six to 12 months uh, before it becomes an investment. Anthony? Yeah. Uh, no, that, that's, I mean, that's exactly it. So I think the process works really well. It's actually very cautious and thorough. And these ideas do have chance to um, chance to evolve, you know, over a period of six months to a year. And once once you are part of management, and that's something that also some you referred to in the past, where you were saying that you need to be a little bit careful. Uh, once you're part of the board and you engage with management for a significant amount of time, you might start to uh, lose a little bit of perspective and maybe objectivity on, on the investment. So how do you, how, how does the process work to account for um, acknowledging that you might have made a mistake and you need to remove away from, from expected particular investment? Yeah. So I think the, the way the process works is that, you know, so you've got you've got your your deal team who are actually part of the board and all that. And then once every month, that team has to come and present to the whole team in terms of how our investment thesis is, is unfolding. And part of that is actually to look at our initial investment thesis 
and how are we going on with that investment thesis to look on the value and opportunities that we identified at the beginning and how each one of those are going. And we we, we, we caught those um, points, you know, green, amber, red, right? Also look at the risks that we had identified, look at where those current risks are. So I think that's quite a powerful way uh, once every month to actually to basically the deal team has to justify why that has to continue being an investment for the rest of the team. And I think we have shown that where our investment uh, thesis doesn't stack up, walk away from that particular uh, investment. Because the danger with trying to persist with something that's not working is that it sucks up the bandwidth for the entire organization and for the entire team. So, so we, you know, I think there's someone who says you don't have to make your money where you've lost it. So, so, so once, once something turns out it's not a good investment, let's cut our losses and actually reallocate our resources to something else. I think we went into an investment. Uh, I can talk about it now because it's in the past called African Phoenix, uh, which was a, a cash sale investment um, holding company. And we had a thesis on how this was going to unlock. But after about a year or two, we realized actually it's not panning out. And we sold out of the investment and deployed the capital elsewhere. Okay. Well, I guess we've come to the, towards the end of our, our questions. So, uh, yeah, I think it just leaves two, two more standard, standard questions to ask at the, at the end of this. Um, and the first one really is just straightforward. Uh, do you have any, any good book recommendations um, for us to read? <laughs> good book recommendations. Uh, yeah, so, so what we do as a team is that what, if the first Monday of every month, right, as a team, we go around and every team member has to uh, um, report back or share with the team what book they've read in the last month. So, so we end up we end up quite reading quite a <laughs> quite an enormous amount of books. Um, so I'm just trying to think, you know, in terms of the latest reads that we and 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 these books that we read covers, you know, sort of various topics. From my perspective, if I look at some of the, the books that I've read, which still continues to resonate, I think if you're sort of trying to start the activist investing, uh, investing uh, model, I think uh, Dear Chairman uh, is too a good book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's this book, sort of, I can't just remember the title now, but basically it's about the, I think like the 20 greatest CEOs uh, um, in, in the history of capital. So it looks at these 20 different CEOs and how they allocated capital. So in there, I think you've got Warren Buffett, you've got the lady who, who was the CEO of the Washington Post when her husband passed away. And, and, and Sorry, Anton, do you remember the title of that book? No, I don't. I just like, remember Casey Graham. It, it, yeah, interesting, interesting stories. I don't. I actually wrote it down somewhere. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but 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 that's that's also quite a great great book, uh, Anthony. Any books recommendations? Look, I think the first of all, you, you've got to appreciate this. Uh, uh, Sam Sam is the most obsessive um, reader I know. So he's <laughs> we, we do have this. This is taken very seriously in the firm. You actually you feel a bit um, you know almost like unshod if you arrive at the monthly meeting and you haven't read a few interesting books. And I'm, I'm in that category sometimes, although I do enjoy reading. And I think the, the topics are, are varied uh, right through from history to state of the world to just, you know, the great regions of the world and, um, and a lot of it investing. I think the, 
obsession that, uh, that Sam has and I share um, is um, on the topic of leadership generally. Because you know, time and again, what we're finding in our portfolio companies is this uh, thing that's actually often quite hard to find and to describe is about leadership. So, you know, we definitely in the world are believing that human agency really matters. Um, and in the investing world, there are lots that don't. You know, we've got some, uh, no names, no petrol, but you know, a particular asset manager in South Africa that you know, every time we see them, uh, I, I have this expression, the truth will out, don't worry, don't change. You know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's like a, a, a meta law over here, which will be that this will all get sorted out in time. We don't come from that world. We are deeply in the world of, of human agency and it really matters. And, um, and as, as, a, as a bunch of South Africans, um, you know, the, the very greatest story in leadership for me is the Nelson Mandela story. And his book, Long Road to Freedom, uh, you might need to have a bit of South African in you to like it. But it's, it's actually the most extraordinary story uh, because you, know, you take this individual and his life experience and then you, you bring it into South Africa in 1994, you know, post a colonial experience, post apartheid, and you bring in a leader um, that had to actually get two things right for South Africa to hold together, only two. He had to get the economy to grow, and, and that is he came in on the back of a leftist-leaning liberation movement. So he had to actually you know, bring his people along and make them understand that markets matter. Um, you can't nationalize everything. Um, you, it, he had to actually, I mean, tough stuff, but he, he, he figured out I needed to get that right. Another thing he needed to get right, you know, was race relations, with this awful race relations history. You know, he had to kind of deal with a, a bunch of white people that felt like they'd lost the war, you know, a bunch of black people that felt they'd won it. And, you know, how do we, how do we make this thing work? So, you know, whilst there might have been criticisms of things he neglected, those two things he absolutely got right. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a most profound way, the economy grew like it hadn't grown in, you know, 50 years. And um, the country came together um, in, in a way that was you know, deeply moving and meaningful to, to many of us. So um, I, for me, I get, I get really you know, wired by people that are um, big, great leaders that actually figure out what are the two or three things we've simply got to make work here. And there will always be thorny issues. There'll always be things where, uh, that go against the grain that are difficult to work. And they're actually you know, very crafty, sometimes stubborn, you know, and sometimes also um, with a little bit of menace, they actually make those big things work. And so, you know, leadership books um, where you find people that have, you know, come into a situation that's been complicated, where they've had to take a, you know, going against the grain positions on a couple of big topics and then work those topics are the ones that um, you know, get me excited. And, yeah, so and the best book of a lot for me is, is The Long Road to Freedom because it actually... Right. It tells a story with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of really moving pieces for South Africa. Got it. No, thank, thanks very much for those recommendations. I mean, I'm exactly the same. Sometimes when I'm put on the spot and people ask me for a book recommendation, I can't remember the title or the author. <laughs> All I can remember is the three or four snippets that I need to remember yeah. from, the, yeah. from the takeaway from the book. So, um, yeah. no, thank, yeah. thanks very much for that. And I, I guess the, the second question is just, you know, if you could give us an example of um, a bad decision that was really due to process rather than, bad look. I think that will be interesting for us. I think the one example that I can think about uh, that um, that was about process was we when we invested in a, in a printing and um, 
media business. Uh, and, and I think the process failed there because we, we looked at a potential value unlock based on a trigger event in that particular business. Uh, but we didn't spend enough time to understand the industry dynamics, uh, you know, the, the printing industry, the, uh, um, yeah, the printing industry is in decline. Uh, so when you invest in a industry that's in decline, that's just too much force against you to be able to unlock, uh, the value for that, uh, part- particular, um, uh, business. The other example that I can think about is when we did an investment, but didn't spend enough time really understanding what kind of a CEO the business requires. Um, and, and, and that's increasingly something that we spend a lot of time on because leadership matters. When you get the right CEO in the business, it actually surprises you on the upside. When you get the wrong CEO, uh, it's a total disaster. So, 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 so we, there was one investment where we didn't spend as much time as we should um, in identifying the right CEO of the business. And we, we ended up having to uh, unwind a lot of things to, to get that right. So Rana, I don't actually have um, additional ones. I think that's those, those ones would be, now I'd, I'd share a common view on that. Um, I suppose also just disposition wise, my colleagues help me on this, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm somewhat, maybe it's because of age, a little bit process cynical at times. <laughs> That's, uh, process, is, process is important, don't get me wrong, process is really, really important. But Sam, I think back to our first investment in Ultron, and it is, yeah, it's in the past, so we can say it, but we, we didn't do our full work. <laughs> we actually, <laughs> we, you know, we didn't present a full um, yeah, um, investment committee papers. We didn't have an investment committee meeting. It was actually Sam and I at the time when we kind of did our work and looked at each other and said, you know, what do we think here? So, and I've also just seen in, uh, from investment firms and investment banks over the years that there's sometimes breaking process leads to the very best outcomes and the very worst outcomes, both of those. So um, I often feel about certainly investment firms is that, you know, having process um, and you follow your process, you generally do okay. But some of the best and worst, worst outcomes, best and worst come from process breaches. So we've also got to, got to bear that one in mind. That's fantastic, Sam. Anthony, thank you very much for your time and for being part of the Value Perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. Really nice to chat. Yeah.